Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we talk about the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. This week, I catch up with Ilya from Near to talk about what's new in the network since our last conversation last year. We also chat about the long and challenging road to launching a POS network, sharded versus non-sharded blockchains, and Near's plans to provide an ideal spot for blockchain developers. But before we start in, I want to say thank you to this week's sponsor, Trail of Bits. Trail of Bits has published a guide for building secure contracts with their Crytek offering. Crytek is a SaaS-based GitHub application created by Trail of Bits. It continuously assures that your Ethereum smart contracts are safe and functional. It reports build status on every commit and runs a suite of security analyses so you can get immediate security feedback. Check out the guide, which I've added in the show notes, for tips on how to build security into your dApps from the start, as well as how to use the Trail of Bits suite of tools for automated vulnerability detection. So thank you once again, Trail of Bits. Now here is my interview with Ilya Fremnir. So today I'm sitting with Ilya from Nier. Uh, Ilya's been on the show before with his co-founder Alex last year. You might want to check out that episode where we talk about, you know, how they got from, from where they were to Nier at that point. Welcome, Ilya. Thanks for inviting me. Hi, everyone. In that show, we actually did talk about your background. We covered, like, sort of, sort of the work you had done before at Google and how you got started with Nier. So in this episode, I think what would be really interesting to hear is what's been happening since then? We're now a year later. What's happening in the world of Nier? So, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff happened. I mean, there's a world <laughs> stuff, right? Obviously, everybody's living through a kind of devastating epidemic around the world. And but it, it did affect kind of in one ways. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of negative negative sides, but there's also a positive side, which is kind of our team and, and everybody around the world, right, went kind of into decentralized mode and really, like, everybody's more interested in what's going on online and what's, like, where they can find a community and, and work together uh, to something that really, like, changes the world. That's a really good point that, like, it's true that this has really turned, like, what was a decentralized focused industry, but we'd still all meet in person and often offices still existed where everybody would get together. Now it's even more truly decentralized with even if you live in the same city as your team, you're actually going to be working from your little pod, <laughs> which is your house. And people have, like, gone to, you know, they've gone back to their parents' home or they've gone back to their hometowns because why stay in these centers, it's super interesting to think of it that way. What else has happened, though, in the world of Nier? Like you, the big change has happened, right? Yeah. So, I mean, we went from kind of like discussing how we're going to build to, you know, having having the protocol launched. So <laughs> and pretty much now having developers and community building on top of it. So you launched the network. How has that been? It is very freaking hard. Um, there's, <laughs> I think like we've, repeatedly miscalculated how much work it is, right? Even, like, I mean, there's obviously a technical work and we've built from scratch a lot. So uh, there's been a lot of kind of just work making sure that all works. But then after that, there's obviously community piece, there's economics and token distribution piece. There is a kind of regulatory, you know, foundation, companies uh, piece around that as well. And kind of all of that together, right? Like you always kind of, 
underestimate how much work it is there, like outside of what you know you think you're already doing. And uh, I mean, this part of it, why like every single protocol has been late, right? Uh, <laughs> from from their original kind of expectations, but uh, it's a lot of work, a lot of sleepless nights, especially given like I'm I'm in Shanghai, so the time zones are hard. But um, different. Yeah, really, kind of pushing forwards has been. I mean, it's 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 fun and exciting because you know you're actually building something that's like affecting the whole world and you know runs around the world, right? But at the same time, yeah, there's a lot of kind of small details that need to come right for this all to work. Like I think, like in last episode, we talked about how much we evolved since like we started, right? So so last episode yeah. was about like a year in. And I think we changed our protocol at least like three times <laughs> by that time. <laughs> Since then or by no, then? No, by okay, then, okay, by, by then, then, by then. And, and big part of it was yeah. like we started pretty much, like we came from building kind of, you know, centralized solutions, like distributed but centralized solutions. And obviously, you know, decentralized space has a lot of its own challenges. Uh, and really a lot of it was been learning and kind of, you know, researching and working with other folks on this. Since then, I think most of the design is the same. Uh, there's obviously a lot of like small details that kind of got refined as we built them. Some details are actually still getting refined. Like I think it's the same as any protocol in reality is like the work is never done, but uh, mm. but like the kind of the high level construction is pretty much the same. It it was built like last year, and then like since then it's pretty much been in like in testing and then production uh, over time. Cool. In that episode, we actually did a comparison of like sharded blockchains. We talked about sort of the different ways that they were built and how Near is built a little bit differently, where instead of having something like a relay chain or a beacon chain as a central point between equal chains, it is mainly that beacon chain or, or relay chain. Is that still the case? Pretty much, yeah. So like conceptually, it's just one chain and then each block is kind of sharded. And so this, like among other things, allows to like increase and decrease number of shards somewhat like easily, uh, I mean, obviously, like there's a lot of like technical issues, how, like how to do it, but uh, like it, because from perspective of a user or a developer, this is just one chain. They don't need to think about sharding, right? Mm -hmm. And so all of the kind of complexity has been handled on like layer deep, right? In on infrastructure layer, and it's kind of been like our like design principle is that we're trying to hide kind of a lot of like blockchain complexity from user and developer. And uh, sometimes it's actually like backfired because mm. especially when we have crypto developers or crypto users who are familiar with like Ethereum coming in and they're like, wait, but where is my, you know, public key or where's my address? And it's like, well, like the things they're actually, used to. Yeah. Th yeah. They're used to the things and like ours kind of works more like regular stuff. And like so sometimes tool. we kind of, yeah, we need to give them a little bit more like for crypto users and crypto developers, we need to give them a little bit more too. <laughs> oh, that's Which so is, funny. You, you almost have to like yeah. diminish the UX experience so that it feels real. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, where, but like, wait, where's my keys? Like, how do I know this is like crypto? It's like, well, uh, I mean, you can go into Explorer and look at like, you know, dig in and like, yes, there's shards there. But like, do you care? <laughs> One topic that's come up like just a few times in the last month or so on this show is just this question of data availability on the L1s. I know that in the last episode we actually did touch on it, but I I don't I don't know. I don't really understand how data availability works or will work in near. Do you mind actually sharing that with me again? 
so the idea is that, uh, so let's say you have, you know, for simplicity, you have 100 validators and you have 10 shards. So each, there's a 10 validators in each shard. They, when they get the transactions for their shard, they split it in 10, we call them parts, and send it to, uh, to validators in other shards. Mm. So the, the construction that's used is called uh, erasure coding. And so this is a construction that if you take some piece of data and... Uh, you can encode it in n parts, and one third of that parts is enough to reconstruct the whole original data, right? So, so this is kind of a way that's used like for data reconstruction, for signal reconstruction, and uh, so this is used by us and Polkadot and and Lazy Ledger and a bunch of other other people uh, in in this crypto space. And so, so what this allows to do, right, is that even if one shard is malicious, even if like in our case, we rely, even if one third is offline and one third is malicious, you can still recover all of the data from all the shards from mm -hmm. the left, left one third of the validators or of the stake. Cool. And so this provides the data availability for all the shards, which means that even if something went malicious, right, even if, if like because it's a smaller subset of validators in your chart, you can always reconstruct the data and prove that that, that thing went wrong and kind of roll, roll back the whole chain. And so this construction, again, it's like it's, it's very similar to how uh, Polkadot, for example, does that specific piece. But in our case, because it's kind of considered one chain, we actually embed this property directly into the chain's consensus oh, wow. and kind of chain rule. So which means that the chain that has been built, like by definition, it needs to have this property of data availability. Otherwise, the people who don't see the available data, like who didn't receive the parts from other shards, will just not accept the block until they receive this data. So, which means like the kind of as chain been built, you know that because people built on top of it, right, and they approved the, the kind of the, the block itself, they have all the relevant data for this thing. And so, so kind of the data availability like properties are the same as, as the properties of kind of security of the chain itself, which is a little bit different actually from, from I think like what Polka, like Polkadot properties are on data availability and, and definitely different from, for example, even Ethereum uh, data availability. Like for example, rollups putting data on Ethereum one, the attack cost is actually a 50% attack, right? Because you can just fork off the chain from a, a different level, right? And so this means that the kind of properties of, of data availability are actually like the, their cost of attack is different from the kind of cost of the, you know, the itself uh, protocol. Like the security model, I guess. The yeah, security the secur model. yeah, the security yeah. model is different. Yeah, so we, we try to align all those all those models together of like the, the security of the protocol, security of uh, like data availability, and everything into kind of one property that people can like reason about. Hmm. Do you actually envision a roll up type system also existing on near though? Because I know with like you know they, if you look at the ETH roadmap, the idea of roll ups also being kind of a permanent feature of an end an end game. Do you also think of it that way? So I actually, like what we've built and actually what Polkadot built, I actually call it a realistic rollup because what happens is like this shard or in, in case of Polkadot, a parachain, they kind of run this as an operator and they send it to the, like in our case, to everybody else or in case of uh, uh, Polkadot to the relay chain. And that relay chain executes it right away and verifies that this block is correct right away and acknowledges it that it's good, mm. right? And 
Like in optimistic case, you wait seven days and, and this is realistic case. You just run it right away and say it's good and now everybody can use it, right? And you can have cross parachain or cross shard communication right away. So from this perspective, like this is, you know, a roll up, like, and like, that's what I'm saying. The properties underneath are actually very similar that you get. Wow. Now the zero knowledge has a different properties. Zero knowledge rollups have uh, properties of zero knowledge of, of like, first of all, scaling the computation, a lot more and privacy, right? You can actually execute some on data that may be not available at the at the moment. Sometimes, not sometimes. All of them do, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It, it's it's like this is the problem with zero knowledge rollups is like it's a very like it, it's it's a big space of yeah of a lot of stuff you can do. Yeah. So that I think is actually ex- will exist in its own right because there is so much more use cases you can do that like it's not it's not your normal kind of you know receive transactions execute you know post it on chain right like there's a lot more stuff you can do including you can actually have a realistic kind of zero knowledge where you put transactions on chain first and then you execute zero knowledge and commit to the result on chain like right now zero knowledge like rollups because uh, Kind of the transactional throughput of the like of, of Ethereum is not enough to like accept transactions. They would accept transactions on their own, but it's actually not a good design because that means you have kind of a centralization point of receiving transactions, and also this has actually some possible potential legal implications, right? Because they may be like it's it's similar to if like a centralized exchange receives you know trades somebody's money and then settles on chain, right? Like centralized exchanges are are enforced on what they can do and what they cannot do. So like actually rollups potentially right if they too if the op- number of operators is too small may get into the same problem but if you use a kind of on-chain data availability first to like collect transactions you don't need to execute them because maybe the data is actually like just a commitment hashes like you don't have you don't reveal the data you want to execute on you just reveal the kind of desire to execute on and the ownership and then the zero knowledge kind of operator pulls the data, oper- like runs it, and then commits to the state and commits maybe to the result. Like that kind of system is very interesting because it allows to do like, you know, dark pools and, and kind of uh, DEXs and all this new stuff in, in a very like kind of censorship resistant and private way. How does that operator though, like, so you just described it, like the operator's still there. Why is that no longer a point of uh, centralization? Because any other operator can do the same job, right? Okay. Like it's it's a very different where like I need to send transactions to this IP address or whatever to this domain, and I send transaction to the chain, right? So any of the nodes can receive it and agree on this is a transaction, and then any other operator can do the kind of the like private execution. I see. Uh, and and like at least from my perspective, I mean, again, like we don't know what's the legal requirements, etc. But like, from my perspective, in this sense, right, like I can run an operator, you can run an operator, right? And, and like, we, we can kind of like, whichever operator gets it first and executes it, right? That's, that's the one that uh, does it. Like there's, you know, also like SGX stuff that can be uh, used. But yeah, from perspective of like, you know, what, for example, right now, like if you're doing Starkware, right, you need to send transactions to Starkware, mm-hmm. right? That they will be receiving them. They, there is a committee somewhere in there as well, but and it's it's multiple. Well, th- there are committees for data availability. There are committees for data availability post facto. Oh, yes, like yes, it's yes. like after you commit to the result, but like so sending trans like somebody needs to receive transactions. It's either you know a decentralized network or a centralized kind of entity. Yeah. Like there's two options. So they either need to build their own decentralized network to receive transactions and com- and agree on commit on them. 
what you just described as those operators, they almost start to take a role. Like they have to be incentivized somehow to do this. And so they're like sub validators or something. You've talked about like the validators that are also going to be existing on various shards. Could these be the same roles? Like, do they have to be independent of the system? So they don't need to be. So this is the idea of like off-chain workers, actually. Okay. So so th this idea of off-chain worker where it, the, the job is like committed on chain and paid on chain, but you do some work and you commit to the result like on chain, but you do the work off chain, right? So it's not, you don't need a committee. And so zero knowledge, like provable work is actually very well suited for this because you don't need a committee. Like the, the result itself is a proof that you've done the work mm -hmm. correctly, right? So that is a really cool thing because yeah, like, I mean, from my perspective, it can be like a piece of software that reads from the chain, the, the input and what it needs to run executes it and then commits to chain back what it does, right? So then anybody can run this worker and there can be like pools of this workers, like, and yes, validators can be running this job as well, but it will be kind of a separate service. You can, you can set up this thing for pretty much anything, right? In theory, you can have like a, you know, MapReduce job where everybody's like pulls some different pieces of data, executes, and then, you know, commits to result on chain. Uh, and like you, you cross-reference that, you know, the job is actually done correctly and, you know, the results matches. Do you have that role, the off-chain worker? Is that something that Nier would actually build or is that just something, is a concept that exists? So we haven't published this yet, but we're actually working on like a, I would say like a five-year roadmap, <laughs> which is not just like, not just for what, not just for what we're building, but like what the ecosystem should build. Uh, including a bunch of like different applications of kind of open web, right? And so this includes like the off-chain workers and like off-chain storage is kind of pieces of that like ecosystem because they will power will be powering kind of this new use cases. Mm -hmm. So for example, new cipher is a really cool thing. And they, they took them, I don't know, like two years, I think, to build it because they needed to build their own infra for this off-chain workers. So if there is there were existing pool of off-chain workers, their work would be just to put a contract to do like it's the same contracts they have right now, but also just write some piece of code, piece of web assembly that everybody can run. Yeah. But like they needed to actually run their own test nets. They needed to do all the stuff because they built the whole stacks themselves. Cool. And so the idea is like to have this kind of common infra that would pretty much feed into it, right? And and use like different pieces of infrastructure. Man, this is so interesting to hear New Cipher put in that context. I didn't think of their role as doing that, but now I'm like, oh, that's. Because I, I always learned about the tech. I didn't really understand how it fit into everything else. But that's really cool to hear. I wanted to ask you something else about sort of the, the general system. Stateless clients. This is something we just on the last episode had Aline on, uh, Aline Tomescu, to talk about this kind of research into stateless clients. And I just wondered if you're thinking about that, if that's also research you're paying attention to, uh, what that would actually mean for near. I've I've been having actually these conversations because uh, I actually got a little bit into well some discussions on Twitter <laughs> about like ETH one is two and uh, so uh -huh. I'm, I've I've been talking with with some folks who are who are working on this um, and we also have a episode of our whiteboard series about uh, Turbo TurboGath on related topic so I think like stateless clients are actually really great from a protocol developer side so as as a protocol developer stateless clients are great amazing because you're actually removing a lot of needs from kind of on the side of a protocol and you're kind of pushing it all on, on somebody else to deal with, right? The problem is that like as a, as a developer of who wants to build on top of the protocol, 
as soon as I start thinking about like, well, how am I going to handle this? It becomes like super complicated because it means that somewhere there needs to be like data available, right? We, we go back to like, what does the data availability mm-hmm. layer looks like? And uh, on top of it, it's not just it needs to be available. It needs to be really fast. So, so like kind of the on-chain data availability, the reason it's fast is because all those people are super motivated. Otherwise, they're going to get slashed. Right. But like, as soon as you say, well, the validators actually don't care about data anymore. Right. They just like, you know, they just receive transactions with all the data they need, they execute it and they're done. On the side of like developing this client and protocol is easy. And, and it also removes big, big chunk of like economic issues, which is like how to, like how to charge for storing data on chain. Mm-hmm. But now you have this this whole like this problem didn't didn't disappear from the ecosystem. You just moved it to somebody else to deal with, right? Mm-hmm. So now you have like things like, for example, let's let's talk about ETH one. Let's say ETH one transitions to stateless world. Now you have Infura, the graph, like all the systems now still need to maintain the data because they will need to still feed like give data to their users, and so now they need to do it. And if they go down, which you know they do. Well, everybody's completely like screwed because wow. like where else are you going to get data? You cannot go to miners anymore. They don't have data. Like y- you really need like one of these guys to actually work. And mm-hmm. so so obviously there'll be archival nodes which will have data, but again, like there's no like we already know there's m- no motivation to run archival node in the first place. So the only people who run archival nodes are Infura, the graph and like other kind of data providers. Mm-hmm. And so so you kind of like you remove this problem, but I haven't seen at least yet a solution for this problem on the other side, right? How the users will be giving getting access to this data? Because to send a transaction now, you do need to get like all of the like Merkle path, right, to your balance, right? For example, even, even in a simple case, like I want to send you some ETH, I need to get like a Merkle path to my account, right? So I need to maintain that information, so, like. Somewhere I need to pull it some from somewhere. So part of part of like I'm I'm yeah I'm, I'm trying to get in more with with some folks who are like working on this uh, personally and also our team is is talking. But I think like it's it it's not yet like fully thought out from perspective of like how it will affect the whole ecosystem. Yeah, and also just just going back to that episode from last week, we actually did make this distinction between stateless clients and stateless validators, or validation rather. In what you just talked about, would you? also put stateless validation in there? Like, or is that a sort of different angle from what we just... I, I would say like, I mean, stateless validation is what you want because the reason, for example, we cannot change number of shards dynamically all the time is because we ha- validators need to get state, right? Like, I'm, I'm, like why I'm saying like, if, if we were went stateless, it would solve so many problems for us. Like mm-hmm. we've thought about it, right? And we actually have, we have all the stateless like clients stuff built yeah because challenges are actually challenges are actually validated in a stateless manner like you send the transactions and you send the state affected and we can validate this in a stateless manner like across the whole network so like we already built all that the problem is if if we just (laughs) yeah if we shift to that then like well who 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 has data right like So, so, so there is like, th- there's this missing piece, I think, which, I mean, I'm actually interested, like may- maybe Ethereum, there's, there's some folks in Ethereum who already sorted it out. So like, I'm, I'm really interested to learn from them in this case. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I've, I haven't seen yet like a, a clear plan. Why, like what's the motivation to maintain this data kind of somewhere else and fee- and also serve it, right? In a way, it's actually like something like Filecoin, right? Or like some data storage solution may be like closer to how Zen this needs to function, but then... 
like Filecoin, serving data in Filecoin itself has all the problems, right? You need to pay for mm-hmm. it to get data. Well, how do I pay for it to get data? If to pay, I need a data to send a transaction. It's like, anyway, there's like a lot of those kind of interesting questions, like how to design this in like really working way. Cool. I had Anatoly on from Solana with guest host Georgios also a few months ago. And he had this extreme anti-sharding set sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> and as like a team that's very focused on sharding, I always like, cause we had that interview and I left it. We never, I haven't quite, I haven't had a chance to really revisit that, but I want to hear sort of a counterbalance argument from you. Um, I'm sure you know his argument, right? You, oh, yeah, like yeah, you sure, are yeah. friends. We, you guys, yeah, have we worked we, we worked across across the road from each other actually in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think so. So there, there's like a snarky answer, which is uh, if Anatoly is right, then the mainframe is enough to like one mainframe is how Google and Facebook should be running their infrastructure. Okay, right. <laughs> But experience because, like, proves otherwise, I guess. <laughs> yes, yes. There's kind of two conceptual reasons, right? One conceptual reason is that, yes, you can rely on like a very optimized, you know, pieces of hardware that like can kind of scale up in, in big ways. But this piece of hardware will always be expensive, right? And kind of his, his point is like, you know, Moore's Law double every, every two years and... Like, but the bleeding edge will be super expensive. Not a lot of people can afford it. But also, you need like very fast network, like the fastest network possible. And on top of it, it's still only double double every two years. And kind of, if you think from like Facebook adoption, Google adoption, like the adoption we want, right? Not adoption we have right now, sadly. Like, we don't want double every two years, right? We want, you know, like 10x in, you know, every in a year, months. for example, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, or something like we, we want, you know, billions of people using this and, and obviously like billions of people cannot fit on one computer, at least like not, not in the foreseeable future. So that's kind of one side. And, and it's kind of like, like there's a usage on one side and there's centralization on the other side, right? The centralization part is like, there's only that many people who can afford to run this hardware. And so sharding solves this problems, right? Sharding says like, well, we will run on kind of on less sophisticated hardware, uh, like it's still, you know, reasonable hardware, at least right now. Well, with status validation, it can be actually less <laughs> sophisticated, but, um, the, like we can actually scale up and, and we also don't need to have everybody like receiving all the transactions all the time. So we, you don't need to have huge bandwidth, uh, requirements either. Uh, and instead, you know, we kind of scale out. So that, that is like one part. And the other part is actually very interesting, which is like Solana is built on, is actually different from how Ethereum built. It's different from how other, like, like one chain networks built. It's actually built in a very similar way as we built it because they, like, they want to parallelize as much as possible. Right? They want to use all the hardware, which is a lot of CPUs, which is a lot of things. And so Ethereum is actually not built like that. Ethereum yeah. is kind of one process running stuff. Solana parallelizes execution of multiple contracts. Otherwise, you cannot achieve you know, actual performance with like, more CPUs and more hard drives. Which is actually actually what sharding is. Sharding is literally yeah. paralyzing stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's just like it's done on one machine instead of done on multiple machines. And so, so the, the kind of like all the issues like we have on, on the kind of like composability and, and some other like and how users need to like work with the stuff, they actually have them as well. Mm-hmm. It almost sounds like the, the parallelization moves up a level in the sharding system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we, we're just like, well, if everything's paralyzed, how do we solve this? Right. And, and, and like, 
the interesting thing is like we can say well let's just run all shards on on the same machines like all machines run all shards and then we kind of get solana to huh. like to big extent uh and and then so so we actually have this like the way we're rolling out sharding is so we start i mean we can go into that a little bit more but you could actually like in reality say well some some shards will be running together right it's just like they need to run on more sophisticated hardware and some shards can like scale out right and so in this way you can actually combine this like different like requirements and different environments a little bit uh while still maintaining like the same developer experience hmm. are your in in near are the shards homogenous are they identical yes and soon no <laughs> what <laughs> what um Mind so blown. so we, we started with everything's homogenous and actually like the interesting thing because the way we, we actually shard blocks not not th there's an interesting like mind shift you can think of it every account and contract on near is its own shard huh and instead we group them into batches for optimizing processing right so if you have your own contract or your own account it actually lives on its own shard and then we just group them, kind of batch them in a way such that, uh, you know, you don't waste resources, right? Yeah. And so that's the idea. Like the block, every transaction kind of comes into its own shard, but then you just batch them to execute them. Into the and shards so that you kind of described. Into the shards, shards yeah. Yeah, yeah into, into the actual, sh like physical shards, right? Yeah. And so, so, and from like from perspective, like Solana actually works kind of the same way. It's like every every contract and account is actually runs in parallel, right? And then uh, they're just like batched. You can think of it as like batched on one machine. And now th that's why we can actually change number of shards very easily. We just rebatch where the accounts are on on what shards. So this is very different from how like for example, obviously like Polkadot and and but also any other like most of the other sharding networks think of it because you have like pretty much in in other sharding networks. Or in Ethereum 2, Serenity Design, you kind of have an account on every shard in a way because you like, and you need to send money to yourself on that shard and like your wallet needs to show it somehow. And it's like super complicated, like for a user. Like now I need to think of like, well, do I have money on that account? Do I have DAI on that account if I want to like, you know, use Maker on that shard? And like, do I need like, so, so we kind of removed all that. We said, well, like from a user perspective, like you don't need to think about it. You just have one account. And we just say, well, the contract cross account communication, all of this is a cross shard communication, even if they're right now in the same shard. This allows us to rebatch things and it kind of makes everything in a way hom hom homogenous because yeah. like everybody runs the same thing. But now the interesting thing is, well, actually, because each contract is its, is its own shard in a way, you can say, well, one contract will be something else. So for example, we're going to be launching EVM as a contract on near whoa so evm like ethereum virtual machine with all the accounts and contracts will be launched as a one contract on near and so inside it you have all this like ethereum contracts and accounts and everything right yeah and like you can think of it it's like we're launching and then like, on top of that you'd have solidity code running so you basically yeah, exactly. have solidity yeah. code yeah, yeah. running so, on of evm on the actual okay exactly oh. yeah yeah and like you can think of it as actually <laughs> this is what uh polkadot is like your your one substrate chain is really just one contract that then runs on relay chain like your your parachains are just contracts that run yeah. on relay chain that's that's kind of and then how the parachain could be 
like EVM, EVM yeah, compatible. Exactly, yeah, yeah, or something else, okay. right? So, so, so this is what we're launching right now is like EVM is, and, and so it, it actually will not be the, its own like physical shard right away because it's, it's not worth it, right? Right now we don't have, we will not have in the beginning enough processing, but as it grows, as usage grows in that EVM, it actually can pop up into its own physical shard. So it, it depends on the usage, not on, on how we want it. But also this means that anybody else can say like, well, I want an Oracle shard or whatever. And, you know, you deploy a contract that does that. And then maybe like we, we are thinking about adding like ability to prepay for some specific gas limit so that you say, well, I want this much gas be like allocated for me. And then so based on that, you may allocate it like into its own shard or like into its own yeah. like, mini shard. Are are the shards specific sizes? Like, is there a limit to the size of a shard? And so you could almost like buy the entire one? Well, yeah, so that's kind of the idea. It's like each shard is really like what, we, what we're benchmarking is. So we want like one second blocks. So you need to execute like within like the shard execution should take like 0 0.8, 0 0.9. It's like it, it, it tries to balance it. So it fits plus data distribution, everything. And we have like obviously gas estimation for everything to kind of how to fit time on basic hardware to the execution. And so this is this is kind of your limit how much one shard can have. And so into this we kind of package all the all the contracts that can fit. And yeah, so you can say like, hey, I want like whole shard for myself. Uh, so we, we we don't have this implemented yet, but like it's kind of it like our system allows to do that because you can just say like I want to prepay for this much gas for my contract or set of contracts. And then like when you send transactions to those, right, they'll kind of go into its own like physical processing. And so this is very valuable for oracles, for example, because oracles don't want to be kind of squeezed by somebody else, like even intermittently. And so they may prepay, like they don't need like a full shard space, but they may prepay for some amount of capacity to just like always have, have enough uh, processing. Okay, so I, I think now would be a really good time to go back to something you teased out at the beginning, this idea of like, you've launched this new network. I want to hear a little bit more about like what that means for Near. Like what is launching to mainnet? Do you have this entire system like ready, poof, presto? Are there steps? Are there stages? Yeah, so we actually have had already a bunch of stages and probably going to have a bunch more. Or phases. Yeah, what do phases. we call them? I guess phases, phase, yeah. yeah, phases. I think I think it's been yeah, it's been a <laughs> a thing now. So one thing is like launching network is super freaking hard. Like there's a multiple complicated parts, and I would say we also like I, I mean we underestimated how much work it is multiple times to be honest, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> like we're like okay now we know what it is, and then like no that that actually there's there's a bunch of more work that you didn't think of. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, th this is a big part why I'm like, like, it's so hard to launch networks, even, even if you have all the code ready, it's so much easier to just launch an app on an existing network. So, I mean, this is like yeah. this kind of, a, a, like, I've been having this, this is a warning to all those L1s yeah. <laughs> that are coming up. <laughs> yeah, L1s, and, but also, and also like people who are trying to like, you know, launch it, like it's their own Cosmos network or, or even Parachain is like, yes, like the, the framework solved a lot of problems for you. But there's still a lot of more work that's kind of there to do uh, to get it off the ground. Um, Would you say most of that is like lives in the community side of things? Or is that like a technical challenge? There's technical, there's a kind of economic, community, communication, like technical. I mean, obviously, like we built all of our code base from scratch. So there's a lot of technical thing, which kind of we got ourselves into. Uh, but then uh, <laughs> even after that, right, if you think of it like, 
just coordinating a bunch of validators and getting them to be like running the, the same software, you know, making sure that everything works, networking, firewalls, all the stuff. And obviously, like now we have like this layer of professional validators. So l l let me let me walk through kind of yeah how we've been launching, right? So I think like kind of a general practice now is have this like incentivized testnet. The first time we started this was actually like end of November last year, so like a year ago. And so it was like a stake wars kind of idea. We wanted kind of validators to like battle against each other and try to find vulnerabilities. And what happened is our software was not ready at all, right? Uh, <laughs> like it wasn't about battling against each other. It was like, can we get this stuff it to, to run? work? Yeah. And 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 the, the the part is like in our kind of. We, it's not like we were like, hey, you know, we wrote some code, it's ready to go. No, we had like a bunch of testing. We had our own internal networks. We had all the stuff and, you know, we, we, it seemed like it's ready. But like the real world is just so much more unpredictable than, uh, than what you have kind of in the lab. And huh. so, so, so we actually stopped our stake wars and we said like, okay, thanks everyone. This was uh, very informative. Uh, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to take the time back to like actually... <laughs> like analyze and and find the core process issues in our kind of way of doing things. And so so this led to like multiple changes on kind of how we do software development, like pull request reviews, how we do release process, how we do testing and and kind of what kind of testing we do as well. And so this like we kind of revamped the whole process mm. and restarted like I mean with that we kind of fixed a lot of problems and found a lot of problems and restarted stake wars again. Um, in like February, March this year. Mm. And so with that, it actually worked way better. <laughs> Some people were like, it works too well. Like, well, you got, why are you guys launching so late? <laughs> oh. um, but <laughs> but uh, you had learned a lesson that you, there was these yes, edge cases yeah. you had to really try out for, you yeah, to really so, look out for. Because, I mean, one of the things is like, if you have like very like non-baked software, you get a lot of the same problems all the time and it actually stresses people out, like kind of that yeah. that's actually developing, right? And it's really hard to like communicate around that. So now like with kind of very straightforward process, it was like very easy because we're like, well, we're going to be like hard forking the network every, every this much. So like if there's issues, if network stop, it's like, okay, fine, we're going to restart. And like, this is also like lessons learned, obviously, like from Cosmos ecosystem. So uh, like, Z like Zaki's recommendation, et cetera, being kind of incorporated into this. So that started... And even then, there was a lot of like really funky problems that kind of came out, right? And so each funky problem we saw, we kind of incorporated it into our like lab testing. So we have this like, uh, we call it the NADAC, a testing suite. There's like 120, 130 like scenarios. And so this is not like unit tests or integration tests. This is a full like cluster, spinning up a cluster of nodes and doing something with them and seeing that everything works. So it's like, you spin up a cluster, you send malicious locks, you spin up a cluster, you drop nodes, you restart nodes, you like hammer them with uh, transactions, you like do all kinds of stuff. Uh, you know, you change epochs, you kind of uh, remove validators and in, like add validators, all those like scenarios. Is this something that you built or is this something that's standard? Is this like an existing tool set we have built this this is actually this is actually alex's experience from memsql oh yeah uh which we should have adopted way earlier but <laughs> it's good we adopted uh, i think it's a standard thing for like in a centralized development environment and i was actually surprised i've been talking with like uh, open ethereum team 
And the Ethereum actually has a version of this, but it's a uh, kind of it, it doesn't seem like it's actually being like fully used. Mm-hmm. Uh, so actually, uh, actually super like I'm gonna put some bounties for people to add, like to use Nadac to use our infra to run Ethereum clients on it to test uh, kind of their scenarios as well. Interesting. Um, because I think like this is a, yeah this is very f- powerful framework to kind of test this like very complicated setups. Uh, I think like they have they have this for ETH2, but actually for ETH1, like Ethereum Foundation has a framework, but it, like I don't think it's been like exercising a lot of the a lot of the like kind of more networking level problems. Like th- I think that the framework they have right now is mostly for consensus part. But anyway, but th- but this idea like it, it actually helped us a lot, right? To kind of uh, standardize how kind of developers can test, like can get like battle tested their code before before uh, submitting it. And so it helped a lot, but still we had all kinds of like random weird stuff happening. Like one of the validators had like some CPU instruction missing on their, on their like somewhat new uh, CPU. And that led to like a fork of the network, right? And all the edge cases you're going to have yeah. to think about. My goodness. <laughs> and then we also had like upgradability was, so we introduced upgradability. It came kind of late. Like we were already like in like, during this process and like we were pretty like stable and so we introduced upgradability because we were like well as we launch mainnet right we will want to continue evolving the protocol and it's important that like it's pretty easy to do right and so we introduced kind of like a pro- protocol level of upgradability and that on its own led to a bunch of stuff because actually like we haven't really tested it well in this lab and so when, you know, when network upgraded and like some people didn't, and then there's like, you know, all kinds of fun stuff that happened. So yeah, so a lot of just like edge cases and random weird stuff that happened that what we did, right, we just took it and we implemented it in Snadoc and just like keep, kept building up the library of this like uh, kind of stress test for the network. So, so that's been like the kind of summer, let's just say. And so... Mm-hmm. With that, right, we've, we've had kind of a, we call it the better net. Uh, so better net was our network where pretty much it was hard forking all the time. So it wasn't for developers, but it was for validators to like, just really hammer at it. Like we had hundred plus people like hammering at it all the time. Like it was professional validators, but also like a bunch of people from kind of community who came in, who was like, Hey, I want to figure out how to run nodes. Uh, let me try it. And so like learned a lot, figured out a lot, and then kind of we transitioned them to like our official testnet. So our testnet actually, the interesting history for it, this testnet has been running since April 19. So it's the same network that's oh, been wow. hard forked and upgraded into what it runs right now with, with not changing state. So like if you deployed some contract in April 19, it's, it's still there. It's still there. Wow. And so it took us a lot of work to, to make that work. But, but so because of this, like some, we, we had like a, you know, a group of developers who've been developing on near, and so they've been kind of using this test net. So we introduced kind of validators to that network. And like by that time, everybody already learned kind of how to, how to do the work, how to like, how to validate, what does all the kind of, like we have smart contract staking. So it's like a little bit more interesting and, but also complicated for validators. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so this is like, then we ran testnet for a while, making sure that that operates properly. And so then in parallel, actually, we launched a proof of authority version or like kind of permissioned version of mainnet. And so we did that in like end of April, beginning of May. And the idea was there's actually a chicken and egg problem of a lot of tooling needs mainnet to start being built. 
And at the same time, we needed a lot of tooling for mainnet, yeah. <laughs> right? Like a wallet, explorer, all the stuff, right? We wanted to test it on mainnet, but like it needed mainnet to, to, to be tested, right? And like, you know, some Why does it solutions. need mainnet to be tested? It's, it's like, couldn't you test that on a testnet? Like all the accounts and all that stuff? Yeah, so we tested everything on testnet, obviously. But like for a lot of like actual, you know, real stuff, you still want like still kind of acceptance testing on mainnet, right? And the same thing for like talking distribution, like some of the like mm. kind of other stuff, because like obviously the like some accounts are different, the keys will be different, all the stuff will be different. So we kind of like launched this POA so we can start like getting some developers to te to like really deploy to mainnet and actually test everything. Yeah. And this still was like kind of operated by us, and so there's a lot of constraints. But what it allows us to do is actually not needing this like. Oh, today everybody's starting mainnet. It was like now that you know how testnet works, you can actually onboard on mainnet. So we had like the slow process mm -hmm. of validators coming in uh, through pretty much August, September, and September twenty fourth is where we stopped validating completely uh, mainnet. Right. So it was kind of not like a step function where it's like okay, today you know everything launched. It was like a smooth function where it's like you know started with like near foundation, and then over time like all of the validators were kind of external. Yeah. And I should say, like, the zero knowledge validator, which I've mentioned a few times on the show, is a validator on Near, And that is actually where I started to see more about the Near network. It was probably like, you know, earlier on this summer. So I did see a little bit of beta net to test net to main net. I guess this is the big challenge for the rollout is having, I mean, has, has anyone tried, I, I don't know if Cosmos did it this way, but like, has anyone tried to go straight in like launch mainnet with validators day one? So I think like everybody's in recent days, like maybe like in, in 17, beginning of 18 is different, but like Cosmos, Polkadot and us, we all launched with kind of uh, restricted tokens. So mm -hmm. we did not allow to, to transfer tokens and we gave this decision to the community itself. The Cosmos did start with like already a set of validators on day one. Us and Polkadot have kind of uh, ramped POA up into it. version two. Yeah. Public, yeah. And Cosmos, I mean, big reason is like all the validate, like Cosmos has been building this validator community for two years. <laughs> so like to a to, to big extent, like us being able to build it like quicker is the reason because Cosmos already paved a lot of work. Yeah, a lot they of work did the, they for did a lot the of, work. For a lot of us, yeah. And uh, so they had like this people who are kind of were ready to go and they've been doing this for two years. And, and uh, like it was like on day one, they had, had all of them kind of ready to go. Yeah. Uh, in our case, yeah, we kind of build them up like and, and train them. And big part of it, like we like our system is pretty different. Mm -hmm. Like we have different account model. We have, you know, smart contract staking. We do have sharding. Like there's like some other stuff that's kind of uh, like interestingly different. And it was like really good to have like people kind of test everything before they, you know, like I think like if, if we tried to launch it on day one, it would have been like a pretty, pretty dramatic like mess. Yeah, <laughs> no, definitely. There was like these small steps in like educating the validators as they go, as you were rolling it out. There were like parts that we had to do to get to get on board. Um, are you let, let's talk a little bit about like building these validators this this group how did you go about putting that together was it like existing validators like what was your thinking around it yeah so it was as i said like combination it was existing kind of professional validators who already been doing this on like cosmos some were doing this on tezos 
we it's it's a pretty small community at the end right so we like connected to most of them one way or another so uh we kind of been talking to them before and we just invited them to this like beta net when when it started and at the same time we made it open right so we said like hey anybody can apply we actually had like over 300 something applications when we just launched it and so this like big part of it was like this professional ones but also like there's a lot more people who are kind of like I'm a, you know, like a developer who's interested in, in the stuff or I'm a developer, but I also, actually I've been validating some, some on some test nets or I am validating some one other network. And so, so this group of people, they were kind of, I would say newer to like to the validating in general. Mm. But at the end, like, you know, they gave a lot of feedback as well because they were pe- people who are maybe less like they're newer so they have a fresh eyes so they can give give kind of more and also they were running like all kinds of different hardware like as i said a lot of people running in cloud but a lot of people were running like dedicated hardware with like all kinds of random random things like like docker is not working and stuff like this mm-hmm. there we had like the set of challenges where kind of through doing them you kind of learn how everything works and you also write documentation or tutorials for other people <laughs> to learn so it's kind of like learning train, by fire like, training by fire yeah is that what it is? <laughs> training by fire but also like like the, the thing we're trying to do is find these people who are like who are excited and, and willing to do it and use them kind of as an amplifier right so like i was mentioning this like a fractal fractal model is uh, I think, like, obviously, like, as as a kind of core team and as, as like, as now network launch, the kind of our role, you know, is still pushing some of the infra stuff. But at the end, it is network, you know, of the community. Mm-hmm. So we want kind of in a community people who around whom there will be kind of keep growing the network. And ideally, it will span up its own, like, kind of, uh, like, Many you know, as a tree, right? It's keep, yeah, keep yeah, growing, yeah. right? That's and so, so we, we, we've been kind of doing that on the validator side, and we also started doing this on the com- kind of community side. So we have this guild, guilds program, which is really around, like, if you're interested in creating a community around some topic, uh, which is related to Nier in some way, right? Like, like, we can actually, like, help you and fund you and, you know, give you tools and, and kind of uh, place and, and everything to, to grow that, right? Mm. So, and ideally, you know, like there will be meta guilds, which will spun up into a bunch of other guilds and stuff like this. Like, so that's been kind of growing. Like we have really cool create base guild uh, running by Midbase, which is like about NFTs on there, right? They just had a treasure hunt actually uh, yesterday oh, cool. inside uh, like a kind of this VR experience. Oh yeah, and I saw that. So, so, Neat. I didn't get a chance to do it. I love that connection though. NFTs to VR. But but yeah, so this is idea is like, you know, and validators kind of have the same thing. So one of the validators like uh, has he has been running Russian community for near and now he's like he built already like two applications, right? Cool. On near as well, right? So and and kind of like from there, like from that Russian community, there's also like new validators spun out that actually like, you know, kind of doing their own like ecosystem stuff in the work. So so really to trying to grow from there, whereas like, you know, they educate kind of next generations and next generation becomes like, a, you know, on its own mm-hmm. kind of uh, evangelists in the, in the system. Let's talk now a little bit about like to go forward on this community topic. Like, how are you incentivizing people to actually build on near? Like, why build on near when there's all these other L1s that we've talked about? What's the benefit? And I feel like, I mean, you guys especially have really worked on on making this the developer experience. So I'm curious to hear what you say. Yeah, so I think there is kind of few levels of this, right? So 
the reason why we started this, right, was because we wanted to build something ourselves in, in kind of this blockchain space. And we realized like how hard it is. And also, I mean, obviously like scalability being one kind of hard part and also just building is another hard part. Uh, so we focused a lot on kind of reducing this barrier to entry. And to be honest, like we're not there yet. Like right? there's still a lot of work to do, right? I mean, we, we've, we've solved some problems and there's still other problems that we like, we still identifying as we bring in more developers in and seeing kind of their feedback. But the kind of the, the, the goal, right, the aim is to, yeah, to make this experience really smooth for a new developer, both from existing crypto and from like open source or even from kind of people who build uh, software in other spaces. Like you, you have those great moments where people like coming from Ethereum ecosystem and say like, holy shit, this is so much easier. And like, you know, I, I'm like up and running in, in one day and already deployed something on testnet. Right. And you're like, yes, this is great. <laughs> and then you have other people who come in and it's like, where is the graph? Where yeah. is the, you don't you know, have any this, tooling. Like, other <laughs> yeah. And you're like, yes, we, we kind of, we have like our day zero was, you know, November, like uh, October 13. Right. So. <laughs> Give us some time, <laughs> right? So, so you have this kind of uh, like there is still a lot of work, but you know we have like this early, early confirmation that we're on the right path. Mm. Now, so this was like a kind of basic thing. The other thing is, and this is why, like, th this is my belief. Why I believe in in kind of blockchain in the first place, right? And we really like to kind of reframe this as open web because. I think actually, like uh, I saw Vitalik tweeted yesterday was like, oh, how do we rename the crypto space, right? Uh, and like, what are the names like? And the thing yeah. is, like, Web three is is like it's cool for like this like geeks, but it's mm -hmm. not really means much for people. And there's this concept of open web which existed for 15 years, and Google, Mozilla, been pushing for it like a while ago. And this is idea of really removing walled gardens. This is the idea of really like kind of enabling people to interact with web without kind of boundaries mm -hmm. and, you know, and centralized powers. And it's, it's, it's like back then when Google was kind of fighting with Microsoft, was fighting with Adobe, with Flash, with all the things they were like pushing for it. And now when they yeah. kind of there, a little bit of walls, but yeah. <laughs> but it sounds like this is so in line with the open source community, the open source spirit, decentralization. This exactly. is super cool. But then you go to open source people and you say like, hey, why are you guys not building a blockchain? And they were like, blockchain, isn't that, that like the whole scam thing that's yeah. been, you know, in 17? And so, so the idea is actually bring, bridging this gap of like open source developers who are building a lot of really cool software and not getting paid for it uh, or getting paid by big companies and bridging this gap where we have this token economics, we have this instruments for like ownership economy for all those things and bringing them together. Mm. And so to do that, we, we have a few pieces. One is on the protocol level. And so this is this contract rewards uh, kind of economic piece that we built in into protocol where a percentage of transaction fees goes to the kind of contracts that are, you know, serving the user, right? Mm -hmm. And so this allows, like, as you build libraries, as you build pieces like services and pieces of software on chain, they actually accrue value like, and they can be distributed to developer, to like maybe a DAO or something. Like, like developer can decide how they can be distributed. Mm -hmm. um, but this allows to have a business model around open source. And this is super different from what exists right now, where you have developers who will produce some sort of very, very important tool or code, like some, some kind of middleware. I don't know if that's the right term, but, you know, like something that will be used by other profit-making entities, but there's no way to fund it. And there's no reason to maintain it. This is kind of trying to solve for that, it sounds like. Exactly, yeah. 
I mean, even if you think of it like Uniswap is like originally, right, as, as a piece of software, didn't have a token, didn't have an economics, like the developer of Uniswap actually were not able to kind of take a fee even of, of this thing, as, like for regulatory reason, but like all the people with money were benefiting, right? And it's kind of like, it's, it's very mind boggling. And uh. part of it is, I think like this, I, I call it ownership like ownership economy, right? This whole liquidity mining and all this stuff is kind of this idea of distributing ownership of something. And so this is a very powerful concept that can be used across the whole space. The kind of this idea I've been pitching, which is like, let's, let's imagine we're building an instant messenger and you can actually distribute tokens to people who are bringing more people into this instant messenger, right? It's like, so, so you can leverage the same like kind of liquidity mining patterns and like distribute to people who are adding value to your network. Like to whatever network it is, instant messenger, you know, gig economy, whatever, like a marketplace for NFTs, right? You can leverage the same patterns everywhere. So this is kind of the second layer of economics, which is I'm actually like I'm I'm writing a blog post about this, but like I, I mean obviously like this is not news. I'm I'm just kind of trying to summarize it into like a pattern and then give like people some tools so so they can do it. And so this is built on top of kind of this like open source libraries and, and services, which then will be accruing part of the value from there. Mm. That sounds like something that would be really appealing to that to that community. Is there anything else that you've done that makes it sort of easier to to build on near? One piece that we've uh, we've started working actually w- way like long ago. We actually started working also last year somewhere around this time is a bridge to Ethereum. And our original like from the beginning we were like uh, you can do kind of a multi-sig approach where, you know, like few people sign, but this creates such a big like vulnerability in the whole system that like we wanted something that's like trustless and decentralized from the start. So Anton, who is the found- co-founder of One Inch, uh, back then was working on like how to do this. And so he figured out a way kind of piecing together some work that Kyber Network did and some like kind of uh, new stuff on our side. And we actually changed our protocol a little bit, like which, like I mean, some technical parts, right? How our blocks are organized, etc., to enable this new like rainbow bridge between Ethereum and Near in a fully trustless manner. Mm. So, so this thing, like, it's pretty much we actually have a private beta uh, that's coming out, and so we had a like it's it's been running on testnet. We had security reviews. We had a hackathon with a bunch of people building on top of it, and so. The idea is it allows you in a trustless manner to connect these two networks, to transfer assets, tokens, NFTs, whatever you want, and also to really do anything you want. You can call contracts on the other side. You can like prove that some piece of data exists on the other chain. Like you can actually read data from some other contracts uh, on the other chain without even ha- having to call a transaction on the other side. So it's very like versatile protocol. It actually works also with like other networks, like anything that has like either smart contracts or can be like programmed like uh, Cosmos and Polk, like and Substrate networks, like you can actually link using the same protocol, you can link to them as well. And so there's like few folks are working with a few other chains to see how, how to do that. But like with Ethereum specifically, this allows the developers on Near to leverage all the kind of assets from start. For example, if you're building some new assets or new marketplaces, you can kind of leverage the like assets from Ethereum, or you can bring your assets to Ethereum and, and leverage the existing like exchanges, etc. Mm. So it, it creates this like very interoperable uh, system. Is this bridge, is it a mint and burn or a lock and unlock? Uh, well, it actually depends on uh, what you're doing. So if oh. 
so 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 the mid the bridge itself is actually like it's a three layer architecture and so on the top like first two layers are providing the proving infrastructure right the proof that some information or something happened on the other chain and then on the third layer is we call it application like connector layer and this is where you as a developer can define whatever you want and so for example for token for ERC20 to like nears version of it it's a lock, you know, mint and burn, unlock mm. kind of model. But you can also build your own, like if it's not like an existing token, but a new token that you want to deploy on both sides, it can be mint burn on both sides or it can be whatever mm. you want, right? You can also like, lock, unlock on I don't know, sides, like you, yeah. you can have pools, you can have like, so, huh. so some people actually already working on a cross-chain pool, which like is, is instead of having like kind of ERC20 that you send, you're actually maintaining balances that kind of are joint balance between these two things. And you're just kind of settling underneath how things are. For example, Ampleforce, like we have a bounty with Ampleforce and Ampleforce, you cannot like just, you know, send tokens directly because, uh, you know, the balance, like the rebase can change your amounts. So you actually need to handle it a little bit differently on this connector level. And so this connector level is really where developers can go crazy and develop kind of lots of cool stuff there, including like a liquidity mining connectors that, you know, as you deposit more funds, you know, you maybe get like another token or stuff like this. So you just mentioned sort of these three layers and that there's this proof layer. Do you know if there's a chance to put like ZKPs in that proof layer? Or do you think of using that? Or is that uh, like totally we, off the table? No, no, no. It's totally on the table. It's totally like we have, okay. I actually have a bounty. <laughs> I have, sorry. As, as the ZK podcast and ZK validator, these are the questions I need to ask. So we have a bounty actually out for building a zero knowledge uh, or like succinct proof for our light client. So one of the issues with Ethereum is that Ethereum is, it's, it's expensive and it's actually pretty limited on how much computation you could do. Like our light client, I mean, we made it very cheap, but still costs like pretty, pretty expensive to verify all the signatures. So we actually like, yeah, like our light client can be succinctly proved with, with zero knowledge proof. And that would actually speed up the connectivity between Near and Ethereum very much. And then on top of it, yeah, any any other proofs like there's a, there's a bunch of proofs that f uh, flying around can also be like uh, compressed with a zero not like with a recursive zero knowledge proof. So yes, for sure, <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot cool. of cool 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 stuff there to do. So yeah, if if anybody like uh, uh, on this podcast interested and excited to build something like this, uh, reach out. Uh, we have we have like funding to do that, and I mean we also can connect you to to all the people in this ecosystem uh, who are working on this. Very cool. Well, listen, Ilya, I want to say thank you so much for coming back on the show and sharing this update with us. Yeah, thanks a lot. I mean, thanks for supporting us as well with the Zero Knowledge Validator. And yeah, thanks uh, for great questions. Cool. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. <laughs>